At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, and welcome to the From the Shadows podcast. I am the producer, Jason Lewis. I would like to thank you for tuning in to the From the Shadows podcast. And without further ado, here is your host, Shane Grove. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of From the Shadows podcast. I am your host, Shane Grove. And with me this beautiful morning is the super producer, Jason. Greetings, everyone. And... Gracing us with his presence. I mean, and I do mean his presence. Because can you feel can you feel the presence, Jason? I feel the presence emanating. The only time I've only time, time I've seen better presence this Christmas morning. Right. Is the judge. How are you doing this morning, Judge? Good morning, but you can refer to me as your majesty. Your majesty. Okay. Or my liege. Your liege. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Hey, whatever works for you. So we we have a really interesting topic this morning we want to talk about, and let's get started. Uh- Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. My name is Steve Yoder, and with me, as always, is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hello, everyone. Now, Bucyrus is a quintessential whoa, 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 Ohio whoa, 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 wait, 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 what, who, what, who, who are you? Shane, yeah. Shane, it's Paula Slice. Oh, Paula, Slice Paula. Ohio Mysteries. Paula, oh my yeah. gosh. Oh, I've got this, uh, I've got this amazing story out of Crawford County. I, I didn't think you'd mind if I just kind of butted in and told you about it. Well, do you guys mind? I thought we were talking no, about I didn't. I was wondering where this extra signal was coming from here behind the uh, sound booth. Well, well, usually on Sunday mornings we talk about Bigfoot or, or the Mothman or something so like that. So are you saying we've been bootlegged? We've been bootlegged. We have been hijacked. Well, it sounds pretty I, interesting, actually, though. I, I got a little help from the Russians to just hack in. Oh, I, great, just, great. Just they decided have... to just go for it. They're getting, yeah. they're getting ready for the for the next election. Yes, they All are. Right. They All enjoy right. you know, they, Tales they of the Paranormal say it's better and I'd say it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. So I thought I'd just go for it. Well, okay. Hey, so for all of our uh, for all of our listeners, Paula is the host or co-host along with Steve of the very successful podcast Ohio Mysteries. Um, 
And I suggest, now you don't have to go right now and listen to Ohio Mysteries because you want to keep listening to this episode. But I think Paula has a really cool story she wants to share with all of our listeners that pertains to Bucyrus, Ohio, and maybe Crawford County. Am I right, Paula? Uh, you are right on. Well, every once in a while. I can't wait to share this with your listeners. <laughs> okay, well, that let's, sounds great. Let's get into it then. What do you got for us, Paula? Well, you know, you guys know this stuff, but your, some of your listeners won't. So let me tell you a little bit about Bucyrus. Because it is a quintessential Ohio hometown in Crawford County. Maybe a half hour's drive from Mansfield, an hour's drive from Toledo. Now, when the historic Lincoln Highway was built through here, the sleepy town carved out a niche for itself, proclaiming to be the Bratwurst capital of the world, something they celebrate every August with a festival. Did you guys grow up uh, going to the Bratwurst Cap? Festival? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. And yes. that would be a whole nother episode for the judge to tell some stories about some Bratwurst Festival nights. But we won't we won't do that. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we all we all have very so, fond memories. In fact, I was the entertainment director for the Bratwurst Festival for probably four or five years. So we all have had a lot of good memories from the Bratwurst Festival for sure. Well, you know, some folks also might remember Bucyrus during the Roaring Twenties because Chicago gangster Al Capone, he used to frequent a speakeasy here. And truth be told, ties to organized crime and motorcycle groups lingered for decades. But Bucyrus is also a city small enough that most folks would recognize each other by sight, if not by name. And back in 1976, when our story begins, a whole lot of people knew John Wren by both. So let me tell you about John Wren. At six feet, 240 pounds, he was an imposing figure. And there was hardly a civic group he didn't belong to. In addition to being a member of Epworth United Methodist, he was active in the Elks, Moose, and Eagle Lodges, the American Legion, AMVETS and VFW, and the United Commercial Travelers. John Wren was also a businessman. For many years, he was one of the town's barbers. And by 1976, he was the proprietor of the Court Cafe, a popular tavern on Washington Square. And every year, in a procession that opened that Bratwurst Festival, he would carry a giant sausage in the style of an Olympic Torchbearer. The previous year, he even donned a Bavarian costume and carried his bratwurst torch on a horse. John Wren, God bless him, was also a loudmouth. Whether he was talking to bar patrons over a beer, standing at the podium before city council, or calling the local radio station, he was always railing against criminal forces that were casting a shadow on his town or railing against the police for not doing enough to stop them. As a matter of fact, his tongue was so sharp, the Bucyrus Police Department even recorded his rants on the radio and made rookies listen to them as part of their anger management training, like how to face accusations of incompetence without losing their cool. Yes, 
it would be safe to say most folks in bucolic Bucyrus knew who John Wren was. And on October 17, 1976, it appears one of them might have had enough. It was just two weeks before Halloween. So the paper boy delivering the Mansfield News Journal to customers along Jefferson Street first thought the figure he saw on the lawn of the Wren home was a dummy set out for the holidays. But as the lad approached, it became clear it wasn't a display. The boy ran home to tell his father about the body on the lawn. And Robert Gwinner picked up the phone and summoned police. It was 7.54 a.m. Investigators arrived and began to piece together a theory of what had happened. John Wren had been gunned down in his driveway sometime between 3 and 4 a.m., hit multiple times with a 38 caliber handgun. Bullets were found in his body, in the ground, even in his garage. Wren had been coming home from the court cafe he owned on Washington Square, carrying the Saturday night receipts from the bar. Witnesses saw him leave the bar with the box around 3 a.m. But detectives found it very telling that the money, $1,400 in cash, was still in its cigar box laying near his body. His wallet was also untouched. This was no robbery. As Wren lay dying on his lawn, his family inside was oblivious to what had just happened. They told police they hadn't heard a thing. Some neighbors, however, had seen or heard strange things. One reported the sound of shots, followed by a howl, leading them to believe someone had just shot a dog. Someone else said they heard a scream, peeked outside, and saw a single figure running west from Wren's lawn across Jefferson Street toward a trailer park where the figure got into a car and sped away. Disturbing as those scenarios were, none of this middle-of-the-night activity inspired anyone to pick up the phone and call police because Wren remained on the lawn until the paperboy came by. Wren was survived by his wife, Dolores, two teenagers who lived at home, John and Susan, and a married daughter, Pamela Nickler, who lived in town. Pamela had given him his first grandchild. He was also survived by his mother, Mildred Wren, who lived in California, and two brothers, Richard and Daryl, who lived in Washington State. Now, closer to home, Wren had many enemies for police to consider, and they pulled in dozens of people to interview and conducted several lie detector tests. Investigators said clearly the murder was premeditated. It appeared the killer was lying in wait for Wren with a getaway driver nearby. It also seemed that Wren saw the killer coming. The car door to his gold Lincoln was wide open and the keys were still in the ignition. Did that mean he was hoping to make a run from his car to his front door? Or did he exit his car thinking to have a conversation with someone who was already standing there? One strong theory was that it was a mob hit. On the radio, Wren often accused local private clubs of illegal gambling and mob connections. 
Another possibility was that the killing was revenge from a motorcycle gang. Here's a case that happened a decade before Ren's death, which makes it seem like it's too old to be relevant, but it's an example of the kinds of situations that might still be simmering. In February of 1967, some people had received a tip that the outlaws, a bike gang, had planned an early morning disturbance at the Horseshoe Bar. John Wren, he was a barbershop owner at that time, joined about 40 other self-appointed vigilantes who intended to stop the disturbance. There was a skirmish during which Wren was assaulted by a man named David Gallant. Gallant was charged with assault and battery, but that wasn't the end of it. While awaiting the trial in that case, Gallant's brother Leo, his sister Barbara, and a friend of Barbara's went to Wren's barber shop. They entered the shop, and Leo Gallant asked Wren if he was the man who had filed a charge against his brother. Learning Wren had done so, Leo told Wren, drop the charges or I'll get you. Wren told police he replied, get me now. And Gallant said, I'll get you later. And so a second Gallant brother was arrested. Leo was picked up at work and ended up pleading guilty to a charge of intimidation because he said it was cheaper than fighting the charge. He was given the maximum sentence, $50 and court costs of $9.30. Rain showed up in the local newspaper for all sorts of other things. The same month as the fuss with the Gallant brothers, there was a street fight in which Ren's barbershop window was broken. He went to counsel and demanded something be done about the hooligans. And a couple months after that, Ren was arrested for failing to stop at a stop sign at Whetstone and Southern Avenue and protested vigorously, vigorously enough that it made it to the newspaper. But there's one other theory about Ren's death that we haven't told you about yet. Ren's enemies might have included a woman or a jealous husband. Because Ren, as it turns out, was a ladies' man. It was said he even furnished an apartment for his female friends. Witnesses said they had seen Ren threatened over his indiscretions before. Then again, maybe the killer didn't have any deep, involved reason for doing what he did. You don't own a bar without having to occasionally eject a rowdy patron. The Bucyrus police chief, Charles McDonald, said, who knows? Maybe someone he threw out of his place got mad enough to kill him. Part of the problem in solving this murder is that the police had trouble narrowing down the motivation. A mob hit? A biker gang? A scorned woman? A jealous spouse? An angry bar patron? A year after the death, Chief McDonald admitted they had made little progress. We have a real murder mystery on our hands up here, he said. We've pretty much hit a dead end. In 2000, it was revealed police did have one suspect they had given quite a bit of attention to. It was a close friend of Wren's who had moved to Arkansas after his death. The friend agreed to a lie detector test, but the machine couldn't get a good reading because the man had a respiratory problem. 
Police asked him to take the test a second time, but he refused. He remained a suspect even after his own death in 1999. His name and his possible motivation were never published. Over a 25-year period, police say they interviewed more than 60 people, gave 30 polygraphs, and really seriously considered a range of townsfolk who, who were from building custodians to local attorneys. The gun used in the crime has never been found, although several potential weapons have showed up over the years. Police would examine each one in case it was possibly connected. The last was a pistol turned in back in 2011, 35 years after the murder. But it wasn't the right one. The murder weapon has proved to be as elusive as the killer himself. That's my story for you, Shane. Have you heard this one before? Well, <clears throat> growing up in Bucyrus, I've heard this story about John Wren many, many times. I'm sure the judge has too over the course of... Uh, his lifetime. Yep. Um, the first thing that stands out to me, though, is John Wren was probably voted most popular in high school because it seems like he was involved with everybody. <laughs> I can't even believe when you started naming all the organizations he was involved in um, from the get go, including the church and the Eagles and the Elks and Moose. Like, when did he have time to work? That's that was my question. It's a good question. I. I think I probably named every organization in town. I'm not sure there was anything left. Wow. And and I will tell you I will tell you this, Paula. I grew up and my grandfather was a fire chief here in Bucyrus. And he he loved local history. And you know, he knew everything from the stuff that we you touched on from the twenties, you know, with Al Capone and the mob and Everything that happened in politics and Bucyrus all the way up to when he retired in the early 80s. And it was always believed in town, I think for the most part, that, that John Wren was the victim of a mob hit. Um, because one of the prevailing theories that, uh, in fact, a local newspaper editor put forth was that the mob from either Cleveland or Detroit um, sent somebody down, sent a man, sent a hitman down that shot John in his driveway, and then that man was shortly found in a trunk of a Cadillac outside. I think it was Detroit, um, not too long after. So, in other words, they sent him down here to do a job for them. And then they took care of the guy, the only witness to the crime. Um, however, that story was uh, what I had always believed was probably, but it wasn't until we started talking about this and I talked to the actual detective on that investigated this case, Pete Hart, who is retired, and he filled me in. He said that uh, they checked that story out back when it was proposed to them and could find no evidence to the, you know, they said the city of Detroit police department had no, um, no body that they had ever found in the trunk of a car during that time period. So that, so that theory of it being a mob hit, which in talking to Pete Hart and some of the other people, that could have been a very plausible theory because 
he just like you said, he John Wren was not afraid to say what was on his mind. He was not afraid to stir the pot. And um, ironically, though, that many of the places he accused of illegal gambling were places I believe he frequented himself and, and gambled. Apparently, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. When I was reading the list of all the clubs he belonged to yeah. and how he would get on the radio and complain about them, I figured... <laughs> <laughs> You're probably imbibing yourself a little bit. Yeah, the look on the judge's face when you read the uh, about them using his rants on the radio as a sort of uh, police, tra- police training tool. <laughs> a police training tool. Yes. I mean, um, that's just unimaginable today. Yeah, because now we have we have social media in which people go on and, and, and they just lambaste whoever they want and they get to hide behind, you know, fake profiles and whatnot, you know. But back in the day, if you wanted to really be the voice of opposition, you had to get on the radio and do it, which is, you know, it's kind of like bullying. You know, we've talked about this before. There was a lot less bullying back in the day because you actually had to get in someone's face and bully them. Yeah, and and there was a chance you could get punched in the face for doing it, or that there would be people who saw you bullying would always step in. You know, there was incredibly very little bullying at our high school because when yeah. we were upperclassmen, we would have never tolerated it. Yeah. But now cyberbullying—I mean, anybody can hide behind a computer and do that. So, so it's a the, different time. On that point, you have to almost commend John Wren for saying what he what he thought. Well, I mean. <laughs> <to avoid. laughs> Even yeah, though, <laughs> I mean, his name was to it. I mean, obviously, when he was talking on the radio, he wasn't anonymous. And, no. And he he said what he wanted to say and put his name to it. And um, so so what's really interesting uh, about this case, Paula, is that, uh, number one, I, I work at the post office with John Wren's grandson. And two... All these, the, the Jefferson Avenue and the trailer park that um, he, that the killer is reputed to have fled to, and then the even the stop sign where John Wren ran the stop sign, and that's all on my mail route. So ever oh since, my God. Yeah, so I sit, so every day I drive through these places where this um, murder took place, and um, when we kind of threw out the idea for this for this story, uh, you know, I talked to Eddie, my the John's grandson, and it was interesting the theory of what happened to his grandpa, a man he never met. He was born many years after uh, John was murdered. Um, just the stuff that the family all these years had believed was, um, you know, what happened to him. I mean, it. They thought it was uh, a sheriff's deputy from a neighboring county who John Wren was having an affair with his wife um, who came up to take care of John Wren. And based on some, uh, you know, some other uh, information they believed to be true, well, when I spoke to the detective that was on the case, the, uh, those little tidbits that led them to believe that, he said that was never Never even in consideration that it would be a person from law enforcement because of the gun that was used to do the actual killing. Uh, I mean, he refer- now I'm not I'm not a gun guy. Um, Jason, I know 
knows his way around a gun, and the judge claims to know his way around guns. But uh, the detective said that, that no, uh, no real law officer or mob uh, can, you know, assassinate, assassin would use a uh, gun that was used. He referred to it as just a piece of steel that you could, that no, no uh, professional would, would use to kill anybody. Or even carry. You know, him. interesting. My my dad, and because I obviously I would have never known who John Wren was, but I'd heard stories about John Wren. And my dad described John Wren as someone who, and I think this is pretty fitting, that John Wren was somebody who would shoot his mouth off like someone who wanted their mouth shot off. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's uh, that's an interesting take. So. But you know, when when you when you think about trying to solve mysteries. And, and Bucyrus is a small town, and, and we've had some murders here. And one such murder I can't go into because of. Yes. But, um, but, but you're talking about a, 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 a someone who is sort of a prominent person in the community, told a mystery, and you say to yourself, well, okay, let, if you apply Occam's razor to the situation, for people who are unfamiliar with the term Occam's razor, it basically says if you have a mystery and you're trying to figure it out, the answer that has the smallest assumptions is almost always right. The simplest answer is almost always right. And when you look at the rent case and you say, okay, he had money. It wasn't taken. There were how many bullets? I can't remember what you said. Well, how many seven bullets? Or eight, yeah. Seven or eight bullets were fired. Mm-hmm. This was someone who was full of passion. This wasn't someone that did this coldly. This wasn't someone that did this because of a robbery. This was someone who knew John Wren intimately, had been wounded by him, and he was going to wound John Wren back. That's what that crime scene says. Mm-hmm. And because for, fourteen hundred dollars back in nineteen seventy six. Oh my gosh! That's a I mean, different amount of money. That's yeah. a lot of money. To, yeah. Well, today. I can tell you, in nineteen <laughs> in nineteen seventy eight, my parents bought their first house, which was a big farmhouse on five acres of land with barns and stuff like that. For thirty thousand dollars. Oh, jeez. So and I remember, nice. and I remember, my parents talking about our good friend of ours who bought that house just down from us, yeah. and that they were just appalled that they'd spent sixty thousand dollars on a house. <laughs> and that was in nineteen eighty eighty one when they bought that house. Yeah. So fourteen hundred dollars back then would have been a large sum of money for someone to just just pass just pass on. So, so Paula, what? So when I, I was given the detective's information that worked this case, and he's since retired to out of state um, by our current police chief, who's actually retiring himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but he suggested I talk to uh, Detective Pete Hart, and this this case still sticks in his. Craw is the one case he always wanted to solve, and I think I think you know from doing your podcast that you run into that a lot. Where police officers, sheriffs, deputies, investigators always have that one case that they that they know who they think they know who did it, but you just can't get that um, break that you need to to prove it. Well, and keep in mind sure. back I then. I mean, it's a point of personal honor. You know, it, if that's your job to do that and you're not solving it, then you feel like a failure. So, absolutely. I mean, I have no doubt 
police want to solve all of these cases because it's what they do. I'm really curious about that friend who ended up in Arkansas. Did your sources say anything about whether, you know, how serious of a suspect he was? Yes, and if and now if we were if we were really guests on the Ohio Mysteries podcast, this is where we would be the armchair detective and come forth with all of our research. And since I had been a previous, in fact, guest, as we sit here, as we, Jason is wearing a Sherlock Holmes hat and a oh, pipe. Yes, yes, <laughs> a, calab- oh. a, cal- a calabash pipe. Calabash. There he goes. But he doesn't. He's not an armchair, so that doesn't. <laughs> but. Uh, Send me a picture. <laughs> but uh, so so the the fellow that ended up in Arkansas is an interesting, um, and I could not get the name as much as I tried to mas- massage it out of uh, Detective Pete Hart's. Uh, he would not. He did not come forward with a name or anything. However, I some of the things he said. Uh, really led me to believe, and I'll, as I tell you, we'll see what the judge thinks. Uh, this man was a very good friend of John Wren's. It was reputed that in the days leading up to John Wren's murder, John Wren and this fellow had a argument in, I believe it was the apartment that John Wren kept for his girlfriends, and that this man discharged a pistol in the ceiling of that apartment. And once John Wren was found dead, this man didn't stay in town too much longer afterwards. And all the people they interviewed and gave lie detectors to, including women who had been with John Wren, like I said, lawyers, uh, custodians, people that had run-ins with him, everybody passed lie detector tests with flying colors, so to speak, except for this one man in Arkansas. And he was the only one that um, did not pass it with flying colors. But there was, they didn't get a good reading. And um, he came back to Besires not too long afterwards, and they tried to get him to do it again, take another lie detector test. And they said he, re- he absolutely refused. And there was basically nothing they could do because they didn't have, they didn't have enough evidence to bring him in on anything. You know, if this would have happened today with the different technology we have, obviously we have DNA mapping so mm-hmm. we, can, we can check for DNA. But the interesting police technique that we now have at our disposal is uh, cell phone pings. Mm-hmm. So if you're a suspect in a crime, the police can subpoena from your cell phone records every location that you have been. It pings. So there have been a number of burglaries have been solved by simply knowing what time the crime took place in a ballpark if you get a suspect, you subpoena their, their cell phone pings, and bang, it puts them right there in the house. Well, let me ask you this, because Besires being a relatively small town, okay, where, how many cell phone towers are around here that if you were at the south end of town where this murder oh. took place, would would you 
ping off the same tower on the south end of town as you would the north end of town or with those two these things are so sophisticated they can tell whether or not you're in the structure or outside the structure really they're that sophisticated they will know if you were in the house or you were out on the front porch now this isn't the same argument that the post office gives us about knowing whether we're backing up out of the driveway And they can't tell whether we're going backwards or forwards. No, this okay. stuff's pretty, right. pretty high It's a little bit better. And, you know, the <laughs> other thing is, nowadays, there's so many cameras out there yeah. that they could go and they could check every camera that was on a bank or in a building and say, okay, the murder took place between this. Here's or if anybody had one of those ring things. On their oh, yeah. There's, there's all sorts of things. that, but and, and that's the mystery of and kind of the cool thing about that era was that if you were going to solve mysteries and be a detective, you really had to be at the top of your game because you did not have modern technology and modern science to assist you. It was interview techniques, physical evidence, fingerprinting, mm-hmm. and things like that. So, uh, oh, and now the forensics is, is just out of this uh, world. The forensic technology is so much above and beyond what it was back then. Also, well, you think about how many how many people have been exonerated uh, for crimes they committed back in the day when this stuff didn't exist, but they kept mm-hmm. the DNA, they kept the hair fiber, they kept carpet, they kept something, yeah. and then years later that exonerated. Yeah. Well, right. what kind of st- strikes me is is I know they did the ballistics on that gun mm-hmm. that they took found in the reservoir I believe mm-hmm. okay and figured out that it was not because Pete Hart told me because one of the theories that John Wren's family had was that whoever shot him because no they were always under the assumption nobody heard anything because they didn't hear anything and at least that's what the family believes now so they were they always thought that somebody had a silencer and back in those days, the conclusion was that there was only two people that had access to silencers, and that were police officers or hitmen from the mob. And it was confirmed that that bullet was not fired through a silencer because Detective Hart explained that it would leave certain grooves just like... Uh, it does. Any gun- yeah, so the silencer does leaves another set of... Uh, and he said it was not. So, But as I was telling... Um, like so, if the guy who they believed it shot a bullet into the ceiling of the apartment, wouldn't you be able to retrieve that bullet and compare it with some of the? And, you should be. And able I'm not. To. And I'm not saying they didn't do it. Right. I'm not, but that just strikes me as that would have maybe been a an important piece of evidence. An important right. piece of evidence. Exactly. So, did you ask Shane if they had attempted to retrieve that? I have not, but I know Detective Hart will be listening to this episode, and maybe he will send me a text and say yes or no that we uh, they got that out of the ceiling. I don't know, you know. And then again, that may just have been a, a story that they had heard second sure. second hand. You know that somebody came came forward and said. Uh, um, the, the, the whole the bullet yeah. that may yeah. not even even happened. Yeah, it may not even have happened, but that was something that um, was relayed to me. So, so what do you, so what do you think, Paul? After here, let's let's put you in the armchair because you did a lot of research well, on this. If we are using Occam's razor, uh, we can rule out the mob because the weapon wasn't professional and 
frankly, if it was that professional of a hit, they might have left the gun right there. What's the saying? Uh, Leave the gun, take the cannoli. So (laughs) maybe not the mob. The biker gang, that was an old story. I know those cases, you know, might have been simmering over, you know, a long time, but it was almost a decade old. So let's throw out the biker gang. Um, You're down to this friend and maybe uh, a lover. I don't think it's a woman. It's so rare to have women shoot. You know, she would have poisoned them maybe. Um, so I'm not sure about that. Now we know but what. Now we know if somebody close to Paula dies of poisoning. No, that, that's a <laughs> yeah. that's a woman's way of killing. <laughs> it's more so than than them pulling the trigger. That's, that's I, I, well, that's, I, well, hey, now I know what Paul. Now we know what Paula has in mind. Well, if I was a betting man, <laughs> yeah, as a betting man with using Occam's razor, I'm saying it was the husband of. A lady that uh, he had been uh, messing around with, who had stewed on it. And if if my my guess is he probably confronted Ren, and Ren being a big guy, mm-hmm. this was not a guy that he was probably going to win a physical altercation with. So he knew he, he you know, and the thing about the thing about being in a small town is, I mean, it's so easy to follow you and learn your routine. Oh, you know, yeah. one of the things look judges get threats all the time. And my life has been threatened numerous times. But one of the things they tell you down at the Supreme Court is don't take the same route home every day. You know, don't have a routine. Don't show up to work every day at the exact same time. Don't leave every time. But but a guy like John Rand with being such a small town would be easy to know a routine, to follow him, and things like that. So this is someone who probably may have even had a verbal confrontation with Ren about this and of course there was he wasn't going to win a physical altercation so he just waited till his time was right and uh, he shot him because look professional hitmen don't need to shoot seven times no <laughs> they don't need to shoot seven times um and it, it, you know seven shots is seven shots you want to make sure the person's dead it's like a crime of passion it's a crime of passion yeah that's that. If I was a betting man, was the uh, well. There is one thing though I've learned from like this case from watching many Datelines in 2020 is always take the money. Okay, if it's a crime of passion, take the wallet, take the money, make it look like a robbery. Well, that's why that's it is called a crime of passion because you don't think clearly. Right. Well, you know, obviously why... though, like this was a premeditated crime of passion. Well, it is. But... So you got to think. Okay, well, the the end result is you don't want to get caught. So so there's a reason why in Ohio, there's a reason why in Ohio, if you shoot someone and kill them, you you can you can assert the affirmative defense of heat of passion. That's not really what it's called, but that's what it is. But then you have the burden shifts on you to show that you did this in a fit of rage or passion and that you did not have sufficient time to cool off. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, and I and I dealt with a murder case one time up out of Seneca County where this guy had, he uh, had came home from work early and caught his wife with another guy and the guy ran out the back. So the guy went and got his gun and he chases this guy all over Seneca County. I mean, it's like an hour and a half chase until he finally catches the guy and he shoots him and he kills him. And so one of the central issues on appeal, I didn't do the trial, I did the appeal. One of the central issues was 
did this guy have sufficient time in that hour and a half? In that hour and a half to cool off, you know. And and the jury, the jury thought, look, an hour and a half is too long. If he would have came home, caught his wife in bed with another guy, and hit blew up and had a pistol on him and shot him. Now you don't get off on that. By the way, that's not an affirmative defense that you get a pass. It, it, you just don't get convicted of of F one premeditated murder. It's a lesser charge. You're still going to prison, but you're not going for prison for nearly as much time, or you can't get to get the death penalty. So what I'm saying in the ring case is, yeah, it's a passionate crime, but it's not. It doesn't meet the heat of passion as no. Because if they, if that story is true that he had a confrontation days before, yeah. or he never had the confrontation on, just wanted to kill him. Yeah. The guy clearly had a cooling off period. So. And the fact that he apparently stalked him to the point where he was there waiting for him, certainly there's some time that is passing, and he's giving thought to what he's about to do. Although, I thought it was interesting that because the keys were still in the ignition, there was the question of what had happened in that second. It, it seemed like when John Wren pulled in and opened the car door, he knew something was going to take place because... The first thing you'd do is you'd take the keys out of the ignition and then you'd step out of the car. He was out of the car before and, and never took the ignition. You know, keys that's out. not but that's not necessarily true, Paula. Because back then people left their keys in their cars. My my family, all the way through when I was in high school, my mom never took the keys out of our car. She just left them in the ignition. Yeah. Because in the seventies in Bucyrus you did not have people breaking into cars and stealing stuff. It just didn't happen. Now, I don't know enough about the property to know about driving into a garage or whatever, but but the mere fact that the, the keys are in the car in and of itself to someone who grew up in this area, isn't that telling? That's true. That's true. That's true. I mean, out that's on the... very interesting. Yeah, out on the farm. I, just like I a lot of people don't lock their doors. Yeah. Door is always open. There's always at least one person there, so they didn't lock their doors. Yeah. Right. I wonder where the car was on the driveway. I bet they have a um, a little drawing or something that shows where the car was. I'd be interested to know if it was parked where he normally parks, well, I guess, or if it was like kind of abandoned in the middle of the driveway or in a spot where, like, he was in a hurry. That might be telling. But that's that's very interesting. I I lived in a a community that was a little bit bigger than Bucyrus, probably about thirty thousand people. Um, I would never have left my keys in the car, but this is really telling that your community is yeah. that in it, the 70s would tell Well, it used to be that way. Yeah, it used to be that way. It used to be that way. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> I can tell yeah. you right now, though, the driveway is is a very a modest, modest length that if a Cadillac back in 1976 was parked in it, it almost would <laughs> take up half the driveway. Because a Cadillac back then oh, would have okay. been about sure. It had been about twenty-three feet feet long <laughs> as you pulled into port. I will. I will say this. I will say this. I remember um, buying the. I was living at home, and I bought us our first VCR. I think it was right around 1979. and we went and bought locks for our house so we could start locking the door because we had this expensive piece of technology in the <laughs> house now. But prior to that time, there were no locks, no working locks 
anywhere in the house. So no, we, the 70s, we would leave. Yeah, it was yeah. a different time. You know, we would leave. We would leave our house if we were going to be gone. If we knew we were going to be gone, we would purposely leave our house unlocked in case one of my buddies had to stop by and get something. Mm. <laughs> I mean, seriously. But that was right. that was a different. Was. You know that that was a different yeah. era back then. It was. You know. So, so, so I think I think we've all kind of maybe come to the conclusion that John Wren's friend, who disappeared to Arkansas and refused to take the second lie detector test, is most likely involved or the man who pulled well, the trigger. Well, keep this in mind: ninety-five percent of all murders, um, the people know each other, and we've ruled out that this was a professional hit. So whoever killed John Wren knew him, like knew him, knew him. Um, so yeah, I mean, the it, it would appear that based upon what, since we don't have the criminal file in front of us where we get mm-hmm. to read all the interviews, um, it would appear that the friend who went to Arkansas would uh, would probably be the main suspect. That's what I, that's what I think. And he's been dead for a long time now. So it's not like, and that's the, that's 1999. Yeah. 21 years. 21 years. So, so, I mean, even though maybe we think we've solved the case, it may never really get solved. No, but it's an interesting story from a small community with a, uh, you know, with a, with a larger than life character. Oh yeah. Um, so. And just just to have just to have so many possible so many possibilities of people that would want you dead because the outlaw motorcycle gang is no joke. Oh no! I um, mean, and, and they've been known to do hits. Also. Yeah, oh, and, doubt. and Paula, for you, so so I know you know. And your assumption was that you know, okay, that happened ten years prior. So maybe the outlaw motorcycle gang wasn't. I mean, they those are people that hold grudges. Mm-hmm. Okay, and like I said, I I yeah. do I do some stuff with David Allen Coe, who is a honorary member honorary member of the Outlaw Motorcycle Gang, and he has turned down shows, very lucrative shows, out of state because uh, there's a conflict between the Outlaw uh, Motorcycle Gang and another rival gang in whatever area it is, and you know. We just kind of laugh it off. He takes it super. It's super serious. Oh, yeah. You super can't serious. like in, in, you can't drive through Ohio if you're a motorcycle gang. You can't drive through Ohio wearing any colors because Ohio is an outlaw state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't you can't wear it. So remember that, Paul, when you're in the back, too. back of a what bike. Is it they, they, you this is it. helpful. This is helpful. I you mm-hmm. know the next time I go. You know, motorcycle riding. I'll I'll make sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there was. Uh, <laughs> but there's guys that. Well, but you know, there, there there's guys that, that that get together and they start a you know a friendly motorcycle club chapter out of the back of their their garage and they think it's cute to get the leather vest and put some emblems on there. You got to be really careful, yeah. because you know. Ohio's an outlaw state, and, and you know, what's it they used to wear on the badge on the front? It said Adios, which stands for Angels Die in Outlaw States. <laughs> it was a reference to Hell's Angels oh, yeah. do not come into Ohio. Problem, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so. That was because of drugs. I'm learning and, quite uh, a bit here. I'm yeah, that was learning. because of the drug trade, and uh, like I said, there would be hits to be put out. It was, yeah. outlaws were no joke. 
No, they were not. And they did not worry. They didn't worry about police. They had a lot of a lot of law enforcement on their payroll and everything else. Yeah. And my my old man, he he had a couple run-ins with old Vance Bennett, who was the leader of the outlaw gang yeah. here in here in Besires or Cro- whatever Crawford. whatever chapter. It was. Yeah, whatever chapter it was. And um, my dad ran the bars with a lot of those guys. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. My dad ran the bars with a lot of those. Guys. And David, to this day, whenever he plays a show, if somebody shows up. In their outlaw gear, they get in for free, and he'll he'll meet who he'll meet them after the show, and talk to them. That's how serious. I mean, that's how serious those guys take that. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, that's you know, I mean, that seems like a different world to us. Well, they but, don't get out. Once you get in, you don't you don't get out. It's uh, they used to use the term for these street punks about blood in and blood out. Well, that was the real deal with the outlaws. I mean, once you've learned the secrets, there is no getting out. You can retire, but you're still an outlaw. You're an outlaw for life. And you could be called upon at any time. Called upon at any time. <laughs> to assassinate John Wren if necessary <laughs> 10 years after, yeah. after the beef. <laughs> now, if there's any outlaws out there listening, we're not accusing you of anything. No, no. <laughs> we're just so So, Paula... Um, Let's get past the John Wren case here, and uh, like I was, we were telling the listeners earlier, you guys have a great podcast, the Ohio Mysteries Podcast. You want to kind of tell everybody about this podcast, and then um, and yeah, what, sure. What you guys well, do? Steve, Steve is my nephew. My co-host is my nephew, and I was a reporter at the Akron Beacon Journal for thirty years. And when I retired, uh, my, my nephew gave me a call and said, hey, let's do a podcast. And obviously, I had a lot of time on my hands now. So, yeah, we do uh, two episodes a week. We do a, a full one that runs on Sunday in which we also, and I know you appreciate this, we feature a different uh, original musical artist from somewhere in Ohio. So we play their song tell you a little bit about them and also do our, our episode on an, on a mystery. Um, and that's on Sunday. And then on Wednesday we do a real short one, probably 15 to 20 minutes. We call it a 10 minute mystery, um, without all the trimmings. And you can find us at ohiomysteries.com. We put links to all of our episodes there. You can also just, if you've got a podcast app, just search Ohio mysteries and, and you can find us on just about any podcast app. I'm a huge fan of your show. I love the banter between you guys. It's incredibly entertaining. And one thing I love about doing this with you is I'm going to be able to tell all my listeners to go and listen to you because they're always looking for great episodes, great podcasts to listen to. And I'm excited about sharing you. Paula, you're such a sweet talker. I can see yeah, why you guys. You. I can see why you guys are such a success. <laughs> but well, who doesn't enjoy a good mystery? Yeah, who doesn't That's enjoy right. a good? But but I will I will say we have uh, stolen blatantly from you guys the idea of when you guys started the midweek, uh, the little midweek mystery. That was an idea I took to Jason and said, "Hey, you know, because um, we have the Ozark Howler and we wanted a platform." For, to get him out there on a more regular basis for because people seem to enjoy uh, his stories too so we kind of said let's I said let's uh, uh, the Ohio mysteries uh, guys are this is what they're doing it's really cool in the middle of the week as you're getting wet, ready for that big uh, episode at the end of the week 
it's kind of like a little a little teaser gives you a little uh, something to look forward to so we blatantly stole that from you guys so because we have literally thousands of people thirsting for that Friday episode. Yes. And we have to quinch that thirst <laughs> with a little bit of Ozark Howler on a Wednesday. Well, if we were the Ohio Mysteries podcast, yes, we would have thousands of people thirsty. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and, then, and then to go back to the music, yes. I, as you know, Paula, you, I uh, uh, have been in touch with a couple people that you guys have had on. And, in fact, the one group, Steel Ivory, and I wrote, a song together that is being pitched now around Nashville, and uh, I, I mean, I have you you guys to thank me for turning me on to those guys. They're uh, Col- girls from just outside of Columbus and live in Nashville, and um, are just getting you know at the start of their career, and really, really talented girls. And I, I'd have never heard of them until they were probably too big for me to be able to talk to. If you guys hadn't had them on <laughs> had them on your episode. So that's I, awesome. So I, t- you know, I can't tell you how much that means to me. It, it definitely makes, you know, Steve and I spend hours obviously doing two episodes a week. And, you know, uh, I mean, you got to do the research and then you got to do the recording. And, and, you know, we don't get paid for this. I mean, it's just a labor of love. So when we have stories like that, like you being able to connect with uh, hopefully some future country stars and, and making some great music, it makes it all worthwhile. That's our payoff. And it just, you know, it brings a smile to my heart. Yeah, it's, uh, and I, and then being in the music uh, industry here in Ohio, just to an extent, I appreciate you guys giving a, a forum to people who haven't, who are trying to make it, you know, because it's tough. It's, it's like the podcast world. Everybody's trying to find their niche, trying to find a, a little notoriety and success and, uh, it's it's Need tough. Some exposure. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. So so Paula, let Absolutely. me. Uh, we I want to ask more about your podcast. What what is the is it any of the episodes stand out to you? Uh, especially like the mysteries and the unsolved murders or the uh, disappearances that you really think uh, should be solved, should have been solved, or one that really bothers you or. You know, what, what What are some of the episodes that really stand out to you? Well, we have done um, a couple of episodes where they have since um, charged somebody in the murder. And one of the just remarkable things about living in this day and age is watching the technology advance so quickly that they are starting to resolve some of these 20, 30, 40-year-old murders from a drop of blood that they just happen to have preserved from the crime scene. And so anytime, you know, we see that happening, it's just really exciting. I think our um, the episode that touched me the most, we had a, an old case from the 1970s where a young cup, teenage couple uh, went out for the evening and didn't come home. And six years later, they found their bodies. Their bodies weren't even buried. Somebody had just killed them, and they just lay on top of the ground for six years, just decaying into to dust. And we did a three-part crossover. We teamed up with the Akron Beacon Journal and, a, and the Akron Police, and we did a three-part series called um, Elusive Justice. 
It was the Ricky Beard and Mary Leonard story. I remember, I remember that. We yeah, got, remember. yeah, we were so fortunate because we talked to almost every, they were both Catholic families, lots of kids in each family. And I think we talked to every sibling except one. There were like 11 of them. And they were wonderful. They gave us such great access. And just, you know, in some ways, the more you know about these cases, the harder they are to do because they're so heartbreaking. You just start feeling their pain and seeing what they've gone through. Um, But those kids went missing in 1979. They have three really good theories about what might have happened. Really good theories. But they can't get enough evidence on any of them. And it's a case where because those bodies were found six years later, there's no DNA, there's no bullet casings, there's no, nothing to help them that new technology is going to help solve that case. So Lucid Justice, that was probably my favorite uh, favorite of the podcast. But most of our podcasts are, mm-hmm. you know, we wind it up in 30 to 40 minutes and we do more than unsolved murders. We do Bigfoot and UFOs. We do buried treasures and missing shipwrecks. And we've done some ghost stories and, you know, mysteries behind places that have developed weird legends. Um, so we, we try to get a, a little bit of all kinds of topics. I, now, have you heard, have you been, has your episode on the Lake Erie Monster been put up for any awards or anything? Because to, me, like because to me, that's probably one of the finest pieces of <laughs> podcasting that I've heard in a long time. Wow. <laughs> that is wonderful. <laughs> no, but, you know, I think to get an award, it'll have to be nominated. So maybe you can uh, you know, look for a place to nominate it. <laughs> I love the Lake Erie. I love, you know, my brother, whenever I do UFO podcasts, my brother, um, Tom, usually says, I don't know if I'm a believer, but I know I want to believe it. And Lake Erie Monster for me is like one of those things. It's like, I want to believe it. You know, maybe you don't have proof, but I really want to think it's out there. Yeah, I, uh, I, the more we do our podcast and the more people we talk to, um, it's pretty evident that there's some stuff out there. You know, I mean, it's... I don't think any one of us have a doubt that there's some stuff out. I mean, we've all had personal experiences, uh, not with the Lake Erie monster, um, but, uh, well, I don't know. The judge looked at me. I I, I do have a a Lake Erie maybe monster experience that forever changed my life, and I have not went swimming in Lake Erie since age 12. But that's that's because at age 12, though, the lake was pretty polluted and gross. Yeah, but to a twelve-year-old oh, yeah. kid, yeah. no, it, it. I have not been in Lake Erie since I was twelve years old, and you know what? I won't get in Lake Erie, mm. and it really kind of. I mean, it's not just Lake Erie. I, I won't get in ponds. I won't. I won't get in water where I can't see what's what's beneath the, uh, you know, the surface layer. And, and and to abbreviate the story, because maybe this would be interesting for your podcast. But I was a. Uh, I was like 12 years old. We, every weekend we went to this campground up on Lake Erie. It was called Bay Breeze. And there were you know, numerous kids up there. And, and one of the things we did for fun was there was a, a dock. And we weren't supposed to be swimming by the dock, by the way. There was a dedicated beach for swimmers. But we would put a mini trampoline at the end of the dock, get a big running head start, and hit that trampoline and do flips and see how far you can jump off. It was fun. 
And back then there was, the water was probably 10, 12 feet deep around the docks. They'd probably dug it out. Um, but there was this giant rock I'm sure that came down through the glacial periods and it was massive and they couldn't move it. It was just too big. And you could stand on it. And even though the water might've been 10 feet deep, the water would only be about waist deep on you because you were on this rock and they had, you know, yellow or not yellow, orange milk jugs or whatever they did back there yeah. to, to designate, Hey, stay the heck away from this rock. So it was me and these two, uh, uh, brother and sister from Cleveland and, uh, the, the, the girl was about 10 years old and she was on swim team. So she jumped off, went out to the rock, was coming back and she starts screaming and thrashing in the water. And me and her brother standing on the dock, like, what the heck is going on? And then but she finally, you know, breaks free and swims like a maniac and gets on the thing. And she's sobbing, crying, saying that something grabbed her ankle, grabbed her leg. Well, you know, we're diving and swimming off the dock. So there's fishing line probably that got broke that's under the water and things like that. So, so we didn't really think that much of it. And she's a 10-year-old girl. So I was the next person in line, and I was not a great swimmer, still not to this day, obviously, uh, since I hope like to go in the water. So I jumped in, and I swam out to the rock, and I was waiting for her 16-year-old brother to, to do his thing. And all of a sudden, a hand grabs my ankle. And I know it's a hand because I know what a hand feels like. Yeah. And now, now keep in mind, I was a 12-year-old kid, so I wasn't very big. But the hand went all the way around my ankle like it had me. And it starts tugging, trying to pull me off the rock. So, of course, I start screaming and kicking and thrashing just like she did. And, you know, and it, it and I couldn't tell you how long it had a hold of me. It seemed like forever, but it probably wasn't very long in reality. And then it finally let go. And I'm screaming, tears running down my face. I'm, I'm in a state of panic. And the 16-year-old kid's like, you know, what, screaming at me, what's going on, what's going on? So I tell him what happened, and he yells, you got to make a swim for it. I'm like, I'm not leaving this rock because I wasn't a very good swimmer. And I'm like, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. So i got to be honest with you, get props to this kid. He jumps in the water and swims out to the rock and stays with me. I bet I sat on that rock or stood on that rock for 45 minutes because I was not making a swim for it. <laughs> and so finally, to make a long story short, we concocted this plan where I would go first. And he was on a swim team, so he was a really, really good swimmer. And that he would swim right behind me, right on my, you know, right on my heels so that something did grab me because I wasn't a if, – if, if, Grabbing me on the rock gave me a chance to fight whatever it was, but in open water like that, no way could I have fought it. It would pull me out and I'd drown. And so he was going to be right on my heels. And, and so I'll tell you, we did it. And climbing up that ladder to try to get out of that water is one of the scariest moments of my life because I kept thinking it's going to grab me and pull me under. But that, that's my Lake Erie monster. I don't know what it was. But I, I've never wow. been – I've never went swimming Lake Erie ever again. I don't mm-hmm. won't do it. Not going to get me to do it. Wouldn't that would let my be kids very do terrifying. It. Yeah. Won't let my kids do it. I won't do it. I don't know what it was, but I know it was a hand. And uh, and it was pull, It was trying to pull oh me off that rock. God. And it pulled the, and it grabbed the other girl. And it grabbed the other girl. I mean, that that's the thing. So it was it was two people. I mean, yeah. But I've got to be honest. Kudos to that 16-year-old boy. Where is he now? God only knows. God only knows. So there you, hey, so Paul, you I want to know wanna... what that is. Listen, I, I just looked this up. There are 
18,000 new species discovered every year, most of them very tiny, but 40 to 50 new mammals discovered every year. And a couple of years ago, they even discovered a pretty substantially sized carnivore mammal called the Olenguito in the Americas. It's the first uh, new mammal they found in the Americas in 35 years. He's a kind of smallish, but bit, you know, bushy and lives in trees and kind of looks like a, a raccoon without the raccoon eyes. So, I mean, there you go. I mean, there is proof. There's a lot of stuff out there we don't know about yet. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, so, so uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I was watching was it, Monsters and Mysteries in America or whatever, and there's this lady that tells a story that's very similar to mine, where they're in the Ohio River, and this thing grabs her leg and tries to pull her under, and she was on an inner tube. Now, you know, her story was that she, it slashed her, that it had claws, and she was cut. I never had anything like that in, in, the, in the, that 10-year-old girl. She wasn't cut either. I didn't have any scratches on me. But it's a very similar story that something with a hand grabbed them, trying to pull them under the water. And her story, which I found interesting, was a couple days later after she had told people, some people showed up from the Air Force, which was what? very strange. From the Air Force, not, you know, not whatever. From the Air Force and asked her about it and then told her not to tell anybody. What? what? Nah, look it up. It's so, what did, so what did they have that escaped? Well, I don't. That's her? the thing that that. And the thing about it was when this happened to this lady would have been about the same time frame that would have happened to me. Well, well, what's? And what's, by the way, the Ohio River runs all the way up to the Great Lakes, doesn't it? Or no? It's well, it goes, tributaries. Go yeah, the tributary. Yeah, right. But uh, but what struck me, Paul, and this goes to to your podcast and ours as far as like the the mysterious disappearances and how people aren't found and and then the search for unknown cryptids or whatever is as I drove to the Outer Banks last week for vacation, and I'm dri- we're driving through West Virginia. Anybody that hasn't had the pleasure or the displeasure of driving. Uh, 90 miles an hour through the mountains on twists and turns. Well, if you do have a second to like look around and just see all the vast wilderness, like the trees on the mountains for as far as you could see, you cannot tell me that we know everything about everything. You know, the, sto- the, the, mis- right. the mysteries that are in those hills and in those woods. Yeah. Well, we uh, had right. we had world famous cryptozoologist Ken Gerhardt on, and uh, you know Ken wrote a book and, and something very telling that was in the in the on page whatever what it was said that you know our planet is seventy five percent water, and we have really not a great understanding of what's under the surface, and the remaining twenty five percent of our planet. Only about 10% of that is populated. So for you think about that, then 75 plus another 15, you know, you're talking about 90% almost of the planet is uninhabited by people. You know, see, so how can you say, well, this doesn't exist or that doesn't exist? You can't. When we t- we are only inhabiting a very small... Or, or when you wonder, how can somebody not be found? Yeah, or how can somebody not be found? You know, how can somebody not be found? And it's like, it just it blows your mind because you think everybody's everywhere. But... They're not. They're not. 
I mean, if you just think, like, imagine 20, 30 miles, you know, from you. How many places can you think of where you could bury a body and nobody would ever find it? Oh, I mean, Paula, I, I've never thought that. It amazes me that we ever find anybody. He's not going to admit that. Because <laughs> that's when, someone, when somebody ends up missing, that's exactly the answer. I am not going to admit to ever wondering that. Or I can hide a dead body. Since I'm poisoning my enemies, I don't have to worry about scaring them. So I don't, I don't think about that. But. Well, let's put it this way: there's, there's millions of places that he could bury and hide his morality. Oh, I think Jesus. he has. Oh, Jesus. Oh, and I think I could ask the judge where he is. He is hidden his because those would be great places. Oh, well, well, Paula. It is. This has been a great story. Thank you for bringing, for doing all the research, bringing this mystery. Um, I know a lot of our listeners from this that are from North Central Ohio. Uh, will this might bring back some some memories that they, um, you know, stories they heard as kids or the adults that that follow, you know, the people older than us uh, lived lived through that. And maybe who knows? Maybe somebody will come forward. And say, look, I, this is what I know. And I never came forward years ago because, yeah. but now that all yeah. the key players are gone and dead, mm-hmm. now I feel comfortable coming forth and telling my story. Yeah. So, so you know, I just did research on a on a. Um, there were three um, murders, and two of them got solved because twenty years after it happened, somebody made a phone call, and that's how it got solved. So it can happen. It can happen. Yeah, somebody. And thank you for forgiving me for hacking in and and, and taking over your show. Well, you know, as how tu- you're going to feel about that. As it turns out, um, what you talked about was way more way more uh, impressive than what we were going to talk about. But that's you. Yeah, we'll just throw that on the back burner <laughs> for just... another episode. I really enjoyed this. Thank you again, Paula. Yes, thank you, Paula. And you bet. Thanks, and, guys. And everybody, go check out Ohio Mysteries. They'll have a new episode dropping tonight. Right. That's right. That's right. We got a good one tonight. Ooh, all right. And 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 also before we leave, we are like, are we like brother sister podcast on the Odyssey Radio Network? Is that how we is that how we refer to each other? Yes, yes, we're siblings. We're siblings, and coming and coming soon on the Odyssey Radio Network. Besides our new episodes, I've been told they're going to do a paranormal block during the night so if people can get their fix listening to you guys us and the paranormal road in like a four-hour block or something if somebody's that crazy and wants to have their mind blown put some shivers in there yeah. yeah so we'll make sure that uh, to tell everybody when that stuff starts happening and they can uh, they can really uh, have a lot of fun so and but, we're all from Ohio, Paranormal Road too. Uh, oh yeah, Ohio connection. Yes, yes. Hey, well, let's be honest. That's where all the cool stuff really happens, anyways. Is hey, we got we got Bigfoot in our yeah, state. We got so Bigfoot. We're doing good. Yeah. We got He's, Bigfoot, Dogmen, Lake Monsters. Yeah, uh, Jerry. Jerry. Uh, yes, we have Jerry. Yeah, yeah don't forget right, Jerry. Pat. <laughs> we we probably have the. You know the the Roswell craft is in Ohio right now at Dayton. Probably, right, probably, probably so. Yeah, probably so. so. Probably so. So, well, well, Paula, you guys keep, uh, keep keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, it's great. I love it. It we gives me. It. I, right. I love listening to it on the mail route. 
Trust me, it it helps uh, helps pass the time for sure. And uh, like I said, I, more than once somebody has caught me uh, exclaiming disbelief to something that you have said uh, on the podcast. So, <laughs> well, we're going to keep surprising you. So keep listening. All right, thanks, thanks so much, Paula. Guys. Take care. Hey, thank you. Thank you. All righty. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Ladies and gentlemen, a final word. Please visit us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash from the shadows podcast and on our Instagram page at instagram.com forward slash from the shadows podcast. You can visit our webpage at from the shadows podcast dot go daddy sites dot com or Contribute to our Facebook discussion page called After the Shadows. And tweet us on our Twitter feed at twitter.com forward slash podcast underscore from. Thank you for joining us and we look forward to hearing from you all. Until next time, never shy away from the darkness or what may be lurking in the shadows. We are out. <laughs> God only knows what's hiding in that shadows. God only knows what's hiding in that At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 